I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. Audio-Technica's support has allowed this podcast to continue to grow, and their equipment is a huge reason why it sounds great. 60 years ago, Hideo Matsushita established Audio-Technica in a small flat in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Today, you can experience his legacy with affordable audio equipment to help with working from home, content creation, and if you're like me, getting the best out of your vinyl collection. Find out more at audio-technica.com and use promo code LTAS10 if you're in Australia to get a discount and support this show. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Logos Foundation was often described as mysterious in media coverage, but became a part of the religious right that supported Sir Joe Bjelke-Peterson's doomed Joe for PM campaign and published full-page newspaper advertisements encouraging the electorate to vote on moral issues at Queensland state elections in the late 1980s. Its embrace of the shepherding movement led many to consider it incredibly cult-like, and certain facets of the religious right today can trace a direct lineage to its teachings. Founder Howard Carter's hardline approach to sinful behaviour would prove to be hypocrisy-ridden for almost the entire time his organisation existed. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of corporal punishment and a number of different types of bigotry. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Howard Julian Carter was born on the 10th of September 1936 in Auckland, New Zealand. Originally studying for a diploma in teaching, he worked as a teacher at District High School in Reparoa from 1961 to 1962. Around this period, he married Jean Eleanor Muir. Howard then studied theology in Melbourne and gained a diploma of ministry from the Baptist Theological College in Auckland, which led to work as a minister at the Manurua Baptist Church. According to the PhD thesis of Sam Hay, he had to leave the church in 1965 after he received baptism in the Holy Spirit. Receiving this baptism as a separate event is indicative of a Pentecostal rather than a Baptist religious belief. Howard and Jean had four children together, and in 1966 Howard started the quarterly Logos magazine in Christchurch, which was edited by Paul Collins. Paul Collins would later go on to hand over his Christian ministry centre in Sydney's DY to Phil and Christine Pringle, who renamed it to Christian Centre Northside, and then to Christian City Church. Today, the C3 Church Global is a well-known global charismatic movement. When fellow Kiwi Paul Collins originally decided to move to Sydney, Howard Carter joined him to help run the Christian Faith Centre, which was the largest Pentecostal church in Sydney at the time, with around 500 attendees. By 1969, Howard had formed his own organisation, the Logos Foundation, which was registered as a company in June 1971. The original focus of the Logos Foundation was seminars, renewal conferences and publishing. 
According to former follower David Orton, while he and his wife were involved, quote, the ministry developed a close association with R.J. Rushduni and the Reconstructionist movement, bringing him to Australia for conferences and as a star witness for Christian school court cases. Rushduni formed the Chalcedon Foundation in 1965, a Christian Reconstructionist organisation that Newsweek once called a think tank of the religious right. According to the Southern Poverty Law Centre's intelligence report, quote, Reconstruction, as described in R.J. Rushduni's foundational 1973 book, The Institutes of Biblical Law, is opposed to modern notions of equality, democracy or tolerance. Instead, it embraces the most draconian of religious views. Rushduni's stated beliefs included being against interracial marriage, that there should be a death penalty for homosexuals, that the Holocaust didn't happen, and that the Bible recognises that some people are by nature slaves. He was also a champion of homeschooling, insisting that education should not be controlled by the state. Restore magazine, which had originally started under Paul Collins at the Christian Faith Centre, became a Logos Foundation publication and grew into the country's largest Christian magazine of the period, publishing articles by the likes of Rushduni. According to David Orton, the magazine was instrumental Australia-wide in promoting Christ's lordship over every sphere from the personal to the civil and cultural. University of Queensland academic Dr John Harrison explains that the organisation really had two arms. The sponsored churches that became known as the Covenant Evangelical Churches and the Logos Foundation. It was both a religious and a political organisation. The Covenant Evangelical Churches only ever encompassed three congregations in Australia, in Perth, Dubbo and the Blue Mountains, the last of which eventually moved to Toowoomba. The Logos Foundation bought a 40-acre property with a 5,000-seat auditorium in Blackheath in the Blue Mountains in 1978, which today is the site of the Mountains Christian College. Esther, not her real name, became involved shortly after this, when her parents joined. She told me how they came across the Logos Foundation. It was probably from 1979 to about 1989, those years. I was really thinking about it and it's hard to actually pinpoint when we started, because I was very young, you know, age of probably six or seven. Yeah, but I think it was around that time. And what happened is that my dad was a minister in the Uniting Church and could no longer practice because there was conflicts in beliefs about baptism. So what happened is that my dad actually baptised somebody who had been um, christened as a child. And at that time, the Uniting Church didn't believe that's something that should be done. So he was basically told to move on. Maybe not so strictly that, but my dad decided to move on. And he knew someone in the Uniting Church that had heard of the Logos Foundation and was talking it up to him. And so my dad decided to move all the way from my dad and mum and those three of us, so I've got an older brother and younger sister, moved all the way from Perth area to the Blue Mountains For international listeners, that's right across the other side of Australia, with the Blue Mountains being a couple of hours west of Sydney. It's a 41-hour drive on today's highways from Perth, if you do it direct. It sounded like Esther's father had been ousted from his uniting church for reasons reminiscent of those that had seen Howard Carter leave his Baptist church. It was really interesting as a child because I didn't know what to class ourselves as, there would be people asking us, oh, so which church do you go to? And I would go, oh, you know, the the Logos Foundation. And they would go, oh, so what denomination is that? And I just remember thinking, okay, what's a denomination? I have no idea. And so I asked my dad and he said, oh, I would be classed as Pentecostal. So from a Bible point of view, it's very strict belief in What the Bible says is the total truth, so there's no variation from that. There's no real context of the time that it was written in and things like that. So, you know, males were the leaders, females were subservient, really. As a child member, Esther initially attended Blackheath Public School for about her first year in the Blue Mountains. But after that, she and the other children were expected to go to the Logos-affiliated school. So it was called Blue Mountains Christian Academy and it was only people from the church that actually went there. We were expected to fast at times, so that meant no food for a day and 
that whole time, well, not the whole time, but if we're at school, you know, we'd have times where we'd pray in between the lessons because that's what you do when you fast is do lots of prayer. We're expected to be disciplined. We're disciplined quite harshly. The school was also not cheap when it came to fees. As I said, we had to go to the school and that actually cost a lot of money as well. So once again, that was another way of controlling money and us as children. And that really had detrimental mum and dad. So mum said at one stage they, they didn't even pay rent for up to eight weeks because they just had no money. The school followed the ACE system, which stands for Accelerated Christian Education, that takes students through units called PACES, which it describes as bite-sized achievable booklets. On the ACE website today, under the heading Why the ACE Program Works, it says, The ACE Program helps churches and parents accomplish the forgotten biblical mandate given to us by God in the Holy Scriptures. ACE's self-instructional curriculum provides all the basic academic disciplines and instills godly character into the lives of students. So we had little booklets that we went through and that, that was our schooling. So it was all American Christian directed kind of schooling. Most of the time with the PACE system, we actually sat in little cubicles for one person. So it was like long desks, but it had like partitions between each desk. And we had little holes at the top of the right of our partition where we could put flags in. So we had, it was an Australian flag and, oh, I forget what the other one was, but it depended if you wanted a teacher or if you wanted a monitor. So a monitor was a volunteer from the church that would just come and help at the school. And we were expected to go through these little booklets that, as I said before, were American-based and Christian-based. So we'd learn about American history, not Australian history, and it was all Christian-based kind of thing. We did have some paces that new pages were put in so we'd learn a bit about the Australian history as well. But, yeah, so we'd work through those little booklets. So you'd read a section then you'd answer questions and, and that was pretty much the pace. And then at the end of the pace we'd have a little exam kind of thing that was done separately and then we'd either get like a score of, you know, if you got over 80% then you'd pass it. Otherwise you'd have to go and redo the pace. So we did that all ourselves. We would actually market ourselves as well. So we'd put up the monitor flag and say, can we go and mark? And we had these little stations there that had red pens and we would either tick or cross what we got right or wrong and then we had to go back and fix them and things like that. This struck me as an incredible thing for parents to be required to pay high levels of fees for, volunteer assistance from the church and students marking their own papers. We did have some face-to-face learning, so some art, some science, and occasionally English would have some face-to-face, but the majority was just sitting in those little desks doing the pay system. Esther told me that in spite of the high fees, she later found out from one of her female teachers that as a woman, she'd earned very low wages from the school and had nothing once she'd stopped teaching. The behaviours expected of Esther and the other Logos children were strict, and sound like they incorporated a spare-the-rod-and-spoil-the-child attitude. When the lunch break bell went, we would go and sit and eat our lunch, and we weren't allowed to say a thing throughout that time, otherwise we'd get the strap or cane. It was only after a certain period of time when they expected every child to actually finish eating that we were allowed to go out and play. We're always expected to do what the adults told us to do, no questioning. In the church services, which usually took about two to three hours, we were expected not to make a noise at all as children, which was really challenging. We were actually punished if we did. So, you know, kids were taken outside and were either strapped or smacked or hit by a stick if we did make the noise and then we'd have to come back in. And we'd be also expected to help with Logos mail-outs and other things that were actually happening. Esther had a couple of examples of punishments that she remembered from her school days. We got punished for things that we couldn't even, like even if we questioned, we weren't explained why. So just for example, in the school like, I was a good girl, so I hardly ever got the cane, well, the strap. The strap was not as bad as the cane. I never got the cane, I got the strap. But once again, the communication was really 
strict. So what happened is um, a teacher that was known to be a really angry teacher gave us some instructions and I didn't understand what he said. And then he, he said that if anyone makes a noise, you know, you'll be in trouble. But I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I'd get the cane, well, the strap if I didn't do the work and but I'll get the strap if I talked. So I tried to quietly talk to the person next to me to find out, okay, what am I actually meant to do? And, you know, I got pulled out and I was given the strap. And I tried to explain to them that I just didn't understand, but it was, you know, you broke the rules, so you got strapped. Esther still thinks a lot about one particular boy at the school and how he got treated. There was actual physical and mental abuse of children in the school. So, for example, there was a couple of kids highlighted in my head that would be classed as ADHD these days or autistic these days. I especially remember one that he, he must have been autistic. And he used to, it's actually really sad to think about, he used to wear like 10 pairs of undies to school because he would be guaranteed to be caned at least once a day because he wasn't following instructions and things like that. And honestly, it was full-on abuse to that child and because he was a bit odd you know the kids didn't like him as well and and like I I just I I just wonder how he is these days because like honestly I don't know how anyone could have survived that it was just constant abuse to that poor kid. Esther described some of the views of the church as very narrow views on life. So for example, abortions were evil in any form. You know, being LGBTQ plus was evil. You know, it would never be accepted. There was the usual kind of things that churches quite often have as like no sex before marriage. No, there were things like not even sex education in the school. It was like a really taboo subject. Oh, the other thing too, from a political stance, labor was actually full on evil. So you only could vote liberal. That was the rules. A reminder for the non-Australian listeners again that the Liberal Party here is our conservative right-wing party, in spite of its name. From even a music point of view, so we're really only allowed to listen to certain types of Christian music. I remember my brother coming back from like a youth camp and he was expected to burn some of his CDs that were like 80s music just because like John Farnham was evil, you know, things like that. It's crazy. Marriage was most certainly considered to be until death. One big thing in the church is there was no way divorce was allowed, even if they were like they were raped or if one part declared they were homosexual, you weren't allowed to do divorce. And I remember my parents boasting to people about how there's never been a divorce in our church. Members were seen as bad if they did not follow exactly what the leaders wanted. I remember my father on a couple of occasions being really frustrated because he wasn't allowed to do things because he wasn't following the line, actually following the rules exactly. There was no way of questioning any decisions they were just expected to follow. Esther wanted to be really clear that there were fun times had during her time in the Logos Foundation as well. Even though the yearly Logos convention was expensive for her parents, she really enjoyed it. People would come over from Canada and New Zealand for these conventions and from all over Australia. There were like lots and lots of kids and we'd just learn about different Bible stories and they were just always fun, there was craft and all that kind of thing. And one of the things that I always really looked forward to was it was actually catered food-wise, so we'd actually have some really cool food, <laughs> stuff that I'd never have normally. So they were always really good times. The other thing too was the ACE conventions. So the ACA, so the PACE system for the school that we did. There was other churches that also did the ACE conventions, so not Logos ones. And so once a year, especially when you're older, there were those conventions run and there were lots of fun. So when I went, I'd quite often do some singing at the convention and just watch a lot of people do sports and things like that. And that was the only time I ever got an award and so that was really fun. The other things we'd quite often do is billeting. 
So when people from other churches would come over, we'd have people staying at our house and it was always interesting to have other people in there. We had progressive dinners that were run quite often. So we'd go from one house and we'd have like entree and then we'd go to another house and then we'd have a main meal and another house would have dessert and another house would have like the parents would have coffee and, and biscuits and things like that. So that was really good. But the most fun I had was the school musicals. So we had a musical every year and there's this wonderful teacher that would actually run it. And so we'd do it like a Christian musical every year, something like Salty. One of them was Ansylvania. And just being part of them was just always so much fun. I've always loved singing and things like that. So that were the highlight of my year when those things actually went on. When Esther and her parents were part of the Blackheath congregation, she estimates there might have been about 400 people involved in that Blue Mountains contingent. At the school, maybe 120 students were spread across the years from kindergarten to year 12. While Esther's father owned a business that was public-facing and a part of non-church society, it was expected that outside of that, the family's lives were to only involve the Logos-affiliated community. All kind of social things were within the church. So there was a church service that was just on Sundays, but there was a lot of other activities that we're involved in. So there was at least the weekly prayer meetings, like Bible study kind of things that the parents would go to. There, there was a lot of fun activities that were involved as well. So, you know, church camps, like so we went away and things like that. So from a weekly point of view, it was at least the church us kids always had to go to the school. There was at least the Bible study. But there was yeah, lots of other things, but nothing always set in stone. So it was kind of like thrown in. For Esther herself, as a child, her social circle was limited. I knew no kids outside of the church. The Logos Foundation also owned a property called Westwood Lodge, from which they operated a Bible college. This property was originally known as Mount Victoria Manor, designed by an architect commissioned by John R. Fairfax, founder of the Sydney Morning Herald. These days it's known as Hotel Etico, a social enterprise hotel staffed by hospitality trainees with intellectual disabilities who are supported by industry professionals. Howard Carter ministered at what became known as the Covenant Evangelical Church at Blackheath from 1969 to 1980. Then he left for Canada to minister at the Vancouver Covenant Fellowship from 1980 to 1985, before returning to Blackheath. Esther told me about her impressions of the man himself. It's really weird because, like, basically everybody around me thought, oh, wow, it's Howard Carter, he's here. Like, because he wasn't at the church all the time because he had lots of churches, some over in Canada and things like that as well. And I just thought he was a fat, boring guy. <laughs> I just, I know that sounds a bit rude, but like I'd never found his sermons interesting at all. I didn't think he personally had any charisma, but other people definitely did. It was like he, yeah, I would say people treated him like he was a god, like whatever he said was just went. So, yeah, it was just interesting. And like actually in some ways I probably didn't like him at all. So he was not personable. He would never talk to anyone but the top leaders that I know of. He was a dictator, so not a leader. So he, as I said, he didn't have much charisma. When it was his 50th birthday, there was this big hoo-ha made about him. And I just remember the people in the church were expected to give a certain amount of money, which was a lot of money back then. And my parents weren't, well, were actually quite poor to the point where they couldn't even pay their bills at times. And they were expected to give quite a lot of money so Howard Carter could have all these gold sovereigns that they bought, or gold coins, and they bought him two really expensive dogs. And I just thought, why? And there was this big, you know, birthday celebration where everybody in the church and people from other areas actually had come in and we all sat down and had dinner and basically praised him <laughs> kind of thing as you do on birthdays, but it was really extravagant and, yeah, and mum and dad couldn't afford it at the time, so I was thinking, why?
The shepherding movement started in the 1970s under the Fort Lauderdale Five. Charismatic ministers Derek Prince, Don Basham, Bob Mumford, Charles Simpson and Ern Baxter. The interdenominational Florida-based group met weekly for Bible study and started the magazine New Wine, to which the Logos Foundation's Restore magazine became somewhat of an Australian sister publication. In 1972, the group took on the name Christian Growth Ministries, and the five decided to submit to each other as a way of keeping on track and checking each other's significant decisions. Bob Mumford would later say, quote, Accountability, personal training under the guidance of another, and effective pastoral care are needed biblical concepts. True spiritual maturity will require that they be preserved. These biblical realities must also carry the limits indicated by the New Testament. However, to my personal pain and chagrin, these particular emphases very easily lent themselves to an unhealthy submission, resulting in perverse and unbiblical obedience to human leaders. Many of these abuses occurred within the sphere of my own responsibility. The Logos Foundation became the Australian face of the shepherding movement, with Howard Carter himself supposedly submitting to the Fort Lauderdale Five. Each of the five visited Australia at various times to speak at the Logos Foundation conferences, and were published often in Restore magazine. Esther told me about her impression of shepherding in the Logos Foundation. There was this system that was called the shepherd and sheep kind of hierarchy. So you had the leader, which was Howard Carter, and then there was another leader that was just under him. And then there was shepherds allocated by the leaders. So they were the ones that made the decisions for the adult church members. So money, they did counselling, they made the big decisions for them. S. David Moore wrote of the shepherding movement, The shepherd assumes responsibility for the well-being of his sheep. This responsibility included not just their spiritual well-being, but for their full development emotionally, educationally, financially, vocationally and socially. Here's Esther's view of how this played out in the Logos Foundation. It was coercive control from the top. So to be in the church, you pretty much had to do what Howard Carter said and then you had to follow the leaders that were under Howard Carter. So it was a pyramid system, but a really controlling, coercive control system. Former Logos Foundation member David Orton wrote, With independence and unaccountability manifestly a problem in the renewal, a correction was needed. So far, so good. But there was an overcorrection with the pendulum swinging towards control. The dynamic clearly hadn't sat well with Esther's father when he was meant to influence the big life decisions of his designated sheep. Mum told me about when Dad was a shepherd that he didn't actually follow the rules properly. So when it came to the big decisions, he went against the church and actually told the people to find out through God what they should do. Dad didn't want to actually tell them what to do. So like he was kind of a bad shepherd and I always got that impression from the leaders as well that my dad was a bit of a, you know, he was never promoted above being a shepherd because he was, yeah, he just wasn't good enough. There was kind of a mini version for children at the school as well, known as care pairs. Esther's experience of this was mostly positive. So you're teamed up with an older person, like so if you're in primary, you're teamed up with someone in high school and, you know, It was just nice to have that kind of relationship with someone older that you could go to and talk to if you wanted to and things like that. But at the same time, that was also another form of an abuse in some ways. So, for example, I wasn't highly liked in the school. So when I went to high school, I wasn't actually teamed up with someone younger than me. I was the only one in high school that didn't have someone that was younger. With those who were following the rules more closely than Esther's father, The nature of the shepherding setup made it a fertile ground for harmful behaviour. S. David Moore wrote, The emphasis on hierarchically oriented submission to God's delegated authorities led to many cases of improper control and abusive authority throughout the movement. For David and Jenny Orton, in the Logos Foundation, quote, What began as a warm invitation to be mentored by a senior leader became a cold and manipulative relationship. Within a short while, they were manoeuvred to the periphery both relationally and functionally. 
The cold comfort was that this became increasingly the pattern for several other prophetically wired leaders within the ministry. Former Logos member Maureen Edison later told the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, The main problem was we felt we had lost control over our lives. It was all dictated to us from above, and that was very oppressive. Everything centred around Howard Carter, he had all the power. Lydia Prince, the wife of Derek Prince, one of the Fort Lauderdale Five original architects, referred to the shepherding movement itself as a cult. She passed away not long after the launch of the movement, and when Derek wanted to remarry, he took his choice of wife to his shepherds in the other four ministers. They counselled him against the marriage. Derek finally got permission to wed his second wife, Ruth, sometime later, in 1978. This dynamic made me think of a few past episodes of Let's Talk About Sects, including Outreach International in Australia, and also the Living Word Fellowship. There it was known as Designated Relationships, or DRs, also Shep or Elijah-Elisha relationships. These were still going on long after the original shepherding movement had fallen apart and tried to account for its shortcomings. And I'd encourage you to listen to the Living Word Fellowship episode to understand more about the harms that can come about as a result of such a dynamic. In Australia, under the Logos Foundation, it persisted after the Fort Lauderdale Five had discontinued practising it internationally. It seemed that Howard Carter wasn't keen to let it go. Another initiative of Howard Carter's that reminded me of Outreach International was something he called Scatterseed. You might remember OI's period called The Scattering, when families spread all over the world with the aim of drawing others to the faith. They were still quite insular, which made the effort largely unsuccessful. Scatterseed was a little different, and Esther told me about her father's experience of it. I think it was meant to be an evangelism thing where dads, so it was only the males, were expected to go on a trip. Well, <laughs> trip's not really what you'd call it, but basically they were the I think it might have been just the shepherds were dumped into an area. So I think it was about two hundred Ks away. My dad was dumped and with no money, with no extra clothes but basically it was just him and the clothes he had on and was expected to preach the gospel and make his own way back to home with nothing and I remember dad coming back like we hadn't heard from dad for a while so we didn't know when he was coming back but he when he came back he was a wreck he hadn't had a shower the whole time his beard was long he smelt really bad and he said that he slept in parks, you know, under newspaper. He ate from bins and hitched the whole way home. There were two parts to Operation Scatterseed, and this was the first phase. You had to do this before the second part. The second part was actually you were allocated to go to a different town in Australia. And the second phase you did with your family, rather than just the men on their own. I remember the day when people were meant to be allocated. And this is one of the times where I believe my dad wasn't good enough so he didn't get it. Like We, we were the only family that weren't allocated a place, so we had to stay. I think it might have been a control issue, so the ones that were really good could go out because you could trust them. I get that impression. However, after the next group of people had done it, my dad went to that second meeting again and they did allocate us to a place. I can't remember where it was. I remember driving there to check it out. I think it was near the water somewhere up the coast and I was all really excited and we ended up packing up the house. And But the day before we actually moved, my dad made the decision that that wasn't what we were going to do. And I remember being really disappointed and I said goodbye to all my friends and all that kind of stuff. So in many ways, I felt like our family was a failure again because we didn't follow what was expected. Now, I'm not too sure how that whole thing played out, if there was church influence in us not going or if it was just dad. I don't know. According to Melanie Myers, who wrote about her family's experiences in the Logos Foundation for Kill Your Darlings, Operation Scatterseed was less about evangelism and recruitment than it may have seemed on its surface. Quote, 
Scatterseed was a program designed pre-internet to disseminate far-right, morals-driven and dominionist propaganda to audiences likely to be receptive to its message. Essentially, that meant other churches, particularly like-minded fundamentalist ones, in more conservative regions of Australia. Maya's parents were sent to Nambour on Queensland's Sunshine Coast, and they were sent together while Melanie stayed in the Blue Mountains to finish her school year, to come up later to join them. She writes, For a long time, it was a hand-to-mouth existence for them, and though this was always couched in terms of God's purpose for their lives, Mum's letters at times betrayed a profound homesickness for Sydney. In 1987, Howard Carter decided to move the Blue Mountains Logos community to Toowoomba. Toowoomba is 90 minutes drive inland from Brisbane, Queensland's capital city, and is its second biggest in terms of population. Commentators suggest that Howard decided to relocate for a preferable political climate. John Harrison notes that there were also some financial issues, with a bad offshore investment, as well as a dispute with the New South Wales government authorities over the Logos School's curriculum. Queensland's longest-serving Premier, Sir Joe Bjorki-Peterson, was still in power at the time of the move, and Howard supported the Joe for PM campaign. A quote from a Howard Carter editorial in Logos Journal at the time includes, In our view, Sir Joe Bjorki-Peterson epitomises the traditional values of Christian commitment, family life, strong leadership and personal sacrifice. We encouraged Sir Joe and promised we would ask our readers to pray for him as a Christian man. Bjorki Peterson, in return, welcomed Logos to Toowoomba, saying that they had a valuable contribution to make to society, according to the Sydney Morning Herald. Bjorki Peterson was the leader of Queensland's highly conservative National Party, while the left-wing Labor Party was in power in New South Wales. The Australian Prime Minister was Bob Hawke, who Joe Bjorki Peterson framed as spearheading a dangerous socialist shift for the country. Bjorki Peterson was interviewed for the Logos Journal, and in reflecting on his party's Queensland state election win the previous November, said it had been an answer to prayer and that everything indicated that there was no way I could win. John Harrison described Sir Joe Bjelke-Peterson's public persona as populist and messianic, and political journalist Paul Kelly wrote in his book The End of Certainty that Bjelke-Peterson's belief that he could beat Bob Hawke was one of the greatest delusions ever entertained in Australian politics. There would be no answer to his prayers this time around, and Joe Bjorki-Peterson's play for Prime Minister collapsed in June 1987. With the Fitzgerald inquiry exposing the rampant institutional corruption of his government, the man himself was ousted from his own party's leadership and resigned from politics altogether by the end of the year. Esther told me some of her memories of the Logos Foundation HQ move to Toowoomba. I was 15 when we all moved up to Toowoomba and it was the whole church move. So there was a um, church up in Toowoomba already and a church school up there already and everybody was expected that hadn't gone on scatter seed was expected to go up to Toowoomba and um, make the base there. So basically... Blackheath was up for sale, so there were so many people moving, you know, people couldn't get good prices for their houses because everyone sold because there was quite a lot of us. And, yeah, then we were all expected to move up to Toowoomba. It was just announced in church one day that that's what we're going to do. So that's what we did. I don't know why or anything, but that's just what happened. In Toowoomba, Esther's parents couldn't find enough money for the school fees any longer so Esther and her sister continued the PACE system from home instead. I did homeschooling from about year 10 to year 12, so I never did the HSC, unfortunately. I did that and I ended up doing it in my own home and, like, mum and dad weren't even home, but me and my sister would be doing the PACE system at home by ourselves. While Esther hated homeschooling, she enjoyed Toowoomba itself. I really actually liked it up there because I made some really good friends and I've got like friends to this day. So it was it was the beginning of my waking up that there was another world. So the people I became friends with were part of the church, but they were on the fringe of the church. So 
their parents couldn't afford to send their kids to the church school either, which was called Toowoomba Christian College. So they actually left school early while I did the PACE system. So mum and dad decided to keep me on the PACE system because we couldn't afford it either. The Sydney Morning Herald described Howard and Jean's Toowoomba house as luxurious, with breathtaking views over mountains to the south and the Brisbane Valley to the east, and a hectare of immaculate gardens. The property was paid for with church funds, but the title ended up with Howard Carter. Church assets in Toowoomba at one point were worth $10 million Australian, and that's in 1990 money. Howard drove a Mercedes-Benz, and a former member told the Herald, quote, Some families were really struggling to survive after paying tithes and school fees. At the same time, Howard was jetting around all over the place and living the good life. He had the best of everything in his home, while some members had trouble feeding their kids. It was pathetic. We were never told anything about church finances, how much was in the bank, what was spent where. An article by Greg Roberts in the Sydney Morning Herald from November 1987 included, quote, Queensland, nurtured by 30 years of conservative government, has become the base for a national network of extreme right-wing groups closely aligned and in some cases synonymous with the charismatic churches. During this period, the Logos Foundation was often asked about its association with the League of Rights, an Australian-born far-right organisation that inspired offshoots in Canada, New Zealand and the UK. This was an overtly racist, anti-democratic, Holocaust-denying group that pushed the usual conspiracies such as a Jewish plot to control the world and manipulate banking systems. It claimed to be all about freedom and published pamphlets like The Dangerous Myth of Racial Equality, Genocide for the White Races. Jeremy Lee was the Deputy Director of the League of Rights and said that he resigned his position in favour of his Logos Foundation membership. But the Sydney Morning Herald reported that he was still speaking at League of Rights seminars in October 1988, which was after Logos had denied that there remained any link between the two organisations. By the way, the League of Rights still exists today, though thankfully with far less profile. But you'll notice many of its messages mirror those big in the current so-called freedom movement, which has latched onto the pandemic to play on people's fears of government overreach and New World Order conspiracies. It won't surprise you to hear that the current website has blog posts filled with vaccine disinformation and fear-mongering around the MyGov ID's potential to be used for social credit in the future like that in communist China. By 1989, the Logos Foundation was heavily invested in political advertising. They campaigned against a national identity card and against a proposed Bill of Rights. On the latter, they distributed thousands of copies of a leaflet entitled Bill of Rights or Bill of Violations, framing the bill as giving unchecked power to the undemocratically elected Human Rights and Equal Opportunities Commission. To this day, Australia remains the only Western democracy without a bill or charter of human rights. On these and other lobbying efforts, the Logos Foundation had spent an estimated $600,000 and was about to spend $100,000 more on the Queensland state election. For that, it took out full-page newspaper advertisements asserting that the election should not be focused on the Fitzgerald report and corruption, but on moral, ethical and spiritual issues. It asked what the candidates' positions were on abortion, homosexual behaviour, the public display of pornography and capital punishment. Logos representatives equated homosexuality with bestiality. Logos was completely out of step with the majority of Queensland voters on this front. Polls showed that the Commission of Inquiry into Possible Illegal Activities and Associated Police Misconduct, that was known as the Fitzgerald Inquiry, was considered the major election issue, as well it should have been. Anglican, Baptist, Lutheran and uniting leaders came together to condemn Logos's political advertising efforts as an attempt to sidetrack the issues of the campaign from the corruption that has tainted many aspects of our society. In April 1989, Howard Carter had applied to join the Toowoomba Ministers Fraternal, an organisation that welcomed most of the city's priests. The Uniting Church's Reverend Ray Lyndon Meyer moved a motion to reject Howard's application, which was passed. He later told the Sydney Morning Herald, his organisation exploits people's anxieties and insecurities to push their far right wing agenda. 
On the night of Howard Carter's 50th birthday, Esther had gotten a small glimpse that something wasn't quite right at Logos. So I went to the bathroom and when I came out, there was this lady sitting out in one of the alcoves, just bawling her eyes out. And I thought, oh, what's going on? And I've always had a lot of empathy for people and things like that. And so I actually went up to her. I was fairly young at this stage, probably would have been about 10, I think. And just asked her if she was okay and and she just kept on sobbing and, and it was almost like she was about to tell me something and then somebody, adult, male, came in, I can't remember who, and she just kind of like all of a sudden stopped and there was no more said. And I thought, oh, that's really weird. I was wondering why she was so upset. But I found out later that she was part of a group of people that were committing adultery throughout the church. In 1990, a female Logos member came to her pastor and told him that Howard Carter had been conducting an adulterous fair with her for months. The matter was taken to church elders who confirmed what had been going on, and on the 6th of August, the elders confronted Howard and forced him to resign. Letters were sent out to 8,000 church supporters notifying them of what had happened, explaining that Howard confessed to his moral failure and was publicly rebuked by the elders. Problem was, no such public rebuke had ever happened. Howard wasn't present at the meeting where his indiscretions were revealed to other members, who were instead read a written statement about the situation. As a contrast, Esther told me about an incident that she remembered from an earlier time at the Logos Foundation. One of the girls in the church actually fell pregnant, and so she was a teenager, And I just remember the church service, so they called the whole church together just because of this incident. It was just shocking. And they got her to get up in front of the, you know, 400 people and she had to confess what happened and they publicly shamed her and then physically threw her out of the church. She would have been about 17 or 18 And none of us knew who the father was. And I just remember that poor girl and her family just crying. Like, oh, it was just, it was just awful. And I knew this was not something that God would sanction at all. And considering what we know about the sexual, you know, Howard was sleeping with people and all that kind of stuff later on down the track, like, it just makes it even way worse. (laughs) It's just shocking. Reverend Ray Lindenmeyer of the Toowoomba Uniting Church told the Sydney Morning Herald he didn't expect the Logos Foundation would continue on for long after the loss of its founder. Quote, It is often the way when the whole structure of an organisation is so centred around a single individual. While the initial revelation had only been about indiscretions with one other woman over the preceding months, over time it came out that Howard Carter's adultery had really been going on for decades that the direct shepherding of Ern Baxter and the Fort Lauderdale contingent hadn't kept such an ongoing pattern of indiscretions in check proved the whole thing was a total farce. And Howard wasn't the only person in leadership to have been behaving in such an incredibly hypocritical way, according to Esther. She and her family happened to be away from the Toowoomba congregation when the news broke. In many ways, we were quite lucky as a family. So what happened is that when we moved to Toowoomba, my dad had to sell his business and it got sold but it fell through. So my dad was still trying to sell it. He ended up moving back to the Blue Mountains to try and sell it for a while and it didn't happen. So we ended up having to move. It was about a year and a half after being in Toowoomba. We had to move back down to the Blue Mountains to work out you know, the business, the plan was to go back up to Toowoomba, my mum said. But during that time, the whole scandal came out about how Card sleeping with women in the church and then the other top leaders sleeping with other women as well and they were all married and, uh, yeah, anyway, it was a, quite a big shock considering how strict they were about sexual kind of matters in the church. This led me to ask one of my favourite and often difficult questions about how much Esther thought the leaders really believed in what they were teaching and how much was about power and control. Esther wanted to be clear that she felt that a lot of people within the congregation were trying to do the right thing. But when it came to the leaders? Do they believe what they were actually saying? Obviously, when it came to adultery, no, because they were being adulterers themselves. And 
you know, for having such a hard line on that, which is normal in churches, and then doing it themselves, yeah, it was obviously contradictory. So it makes you wonder, well, it makes me wonder how much more they didn't actually believe. It was all about how they could control. Esther said that the impact of the revelations on her family wasn't so bad. Her parents maintained the relationships that they built with community members, but weren't too devastated about losing their connections with the church after the scandal, as far as she could tell. For me, I was just glad. Even as a child, I instinctively knew that this place was wrong. But saying that, like, the whole thing wasn't all bad. There's lots of really awesome things we did in the church that I really did enjoy. But yeah, the breakup of the church really didn't affect our family much at all. One thing that did affect Esther and others was their education. The ACE system didn't set them up for a high school certificate qualification at all. So when people wanted to go to uni later on, it was actually quite challenging for them to actually do it because there was no equivalent. We had to get 80% in our paces to actually pass. So it kind of looked good on books, but there was no equivalent of the HSC. So I know people had to do the stat test to be able to try and get into university later on. And that's what I ended up doing. But I was mm, like 30 when I went to uni. But overall, the feeling of being free from the control she felt within the Logos Foundation was pretty good. It was like a whole different world. Like, honestly, it was insane. You know, music, freedom. I, I don't know. It was just, yeah, moving back down here and because we continued on down here, it was just, I know, I just learned about life, basically. It wasn't just all this narrow kind of way. It was just, yeah, like I found out that I totally love music. I found out that, you know, there's TV shows that were really cool. You know, in the church, we weren't allowed to have Smurfs because, you know, Smurfette was a, a transvestite and, and all the Smurfs were dead. So that was evil. So, you know, there's so many strict rules that we weren't allowed to do. And it was like, yeah, like I learned that outside the world wasn't so dangerous and as a lot more peaceful in many ways. Following the break from Logos, Esther managed to keep her faith and the family started attending a uniting church. I met my husband at the age of 16 and he was part of the uniting church where in the Blue Mountains when we moved back down, so the place that Dad chose that we should go to. And it was really interesting. My husband's so awesome. Like he taught me so much about the real world and, and supported me in actually doing studies later on in life. And he gave me the opportunity to open a door that I could be more than just a stay-at-home mum. Yeah, he was amazing. So, yeah, so I married at 19 and we just had our 30th wedding anniversary this month actually. Unfortunately, Esther's faith has been tested in more recent years as her son has joined a different cult. She didn't see it coming at all and had no idea of his involvement with the organisation before he disappeared a couple of days after his 18th birthday. Esther was incredibly worried for his safety when she didn't hear anything from him, and then she found out what he was wrapped up in. That organisation, which Esther didn't want to name, does not allow any contact with outsiders aside from emails that are scripted and approved by the group, so that's the only contact she's had with her son in some time. It's been over three years now. So, yeah, my faith has been tested amongst this because, you know, they say they fully believe in Jesus, but the leader has his own interpretation of what that all means. And I'm no longer called mum. I'm called by my first name because, as the leader has said to someone, that it's just a biological accident that I'm the mum. So it's, you know, I'm not really the mum. So, yeah, so there's lots of things going on around that and all we can do is hope that my son that God actually intervenes and helps my son get out of it at some stage so I can have a relationship with my son again like even just you know like actual seeing him once a year would be nice you know just even base kind of contact would be really nice yeah
By the time of Howard Carter's demise, the Logos Foundation had churches in the Philippines, Canada, the USA, New Zealand and Fiji, in addition to its Australian ones. These collapsed, and in January 1991, the Logos Foundation was reported to be selling off its Toowoomba assets and cancelling its Bible college program. A year almost to the day after his disgraced resignation from the organisation that he'd founded, Howard Carter died from eye cancer. In some respects, the Logos legacy lives on today. Lyle Shelton, current National Director of the Reimagined Family First Party and key campaigner for the No Vote on the Marriage Equality plebiscite as then-managing director of the Australian Christian Lobby, is the son of one of Howard Carter's right-hand men, former Logos pastor Ian Shelton. Historian Chris Stevenson writes that, When Logos fell apart, Ian Shelton regrouped with the formation of his Toowoomba City Church, and what had been Logos reformed as the Network for Christian Values. Two NCV board members went on to create the Australian Christian Coalition, which is now known as the Australian Christian Lobby. Lyle Shelton's Family First Party currently has a push to protect kids by shutting down gender clinics, and asserts that Australian citizens' religious freedom is under fire like never before. A couple of policies they're taking to the Victorian state election include, quote, abolish compulsory or coercive diversity training and participation for public servants and employees of woke corporations, and abolish anti-vilification and anti-discrimination laws which restrict freedom of speech and religion. And in education, they want to restore the primacy of Western civilization and the Australian achievement. I'm going to end today's episode on a few words from Esther about her current position on love and judgment when it comes to religion. I I believe personally that when I look at Jesus, he was nothing but love and he only showed love for everybody. And even though, like everybody, we have like biases and we do see people in different ways and things like that. And yeah, I, I still believe with my true heart that there's no way I can judge anybody. That is not my job. And it's about showing everybody love the best way we can. I, I don't judge people. So just for an example, like, you know, I know a lot of church members don't like the gay lesbian world. And it's like, how dare anybody make a judgment about their decision in life? It, yeah, abortion. How dare we as a person make a decision about somebody else's life we don't know their situation you know i'm sure they'll be doing the best thing for how they perceive their life needs to go i find churches so judgmental these days and to me that's not jesus that's what it comes down to You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon or Acast Plus, linked in the show notes, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say. This episode of Let's Talk About Sex was researched and written by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. Thanks to Matt Brazel for editing. A very special thanks to Esther for sharing her story with me. Information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects.
If you're in the market for some top quality audio equipment, use promo code LTAS10 at audio-technica.com on their Australian store to get a discount and support this show. Their range of headphones and turntables is quite ridiculous, and don't get me started on their mics. Audio Technica, celebrating 60 years of listening. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to cult information and family support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia, or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Thanks for joining me, and hope to catch you again next episode.